Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance, and I'm very happy to be with you on this very warm uh, winter day. Hey, so they say birds of a feather flock together, uh, but I hope that at least in this case, uh, my friends and I are not always alike. Uh, one of my friends is kind of an extreme dude. Uh, I remember one year during the winter, my wife and I went to go see him, and as soon as we walked in that house, it was like freezing. Uh, have you ever walked into someone's house and it's like colder inside than it was outside? I walked in the house and I was like, yo, dude, something's wrong with, like, did the heat break? And he was like, no, 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 we set it to 50 to save money. I was like, okay, well, that's, that's pretty aggressive. Uh, and he started telling me all about that he and his wife uh, started doing this new financial program to get out of debt. That was just the beginning. Uh, I soon realized that it wasn't just in setting the heat to 50 to save money. They were on a radical plan to save money everywhere they could. So with food, they went to Costco to buy the cheapest food that they can imagine, and they ate it for a month straight. That month, I was lucky enough to be there. It was hot dogs. For breakfast, eggs and hot dogs. For lunch, hot dogs and potato chips. For dinner, it was actually lobster tails. Actually, no, it was spaghetti and hot dogs. <laughs> and as we neared our third hot dog meal of the day, I saw my friend start to warm up his presentation to me, that he was going to try to pitch to me this financial plan that he and his wife are on. And I said, hey, let me just stop you right real, real quick. Let me stop you real quick. I actually have this condition that I can't eat three hot dogs a day. I mean, like, it's, <laughs> it's hereditary, I think. Um, and... I would rather have Sally Mae on my back until I am 93 years old than to do this plan that you are on. To be perfectly honest, for years after that, I treated every piece of advice he gave me as sort of a gateway drug to eating three hot dogs a day. Uh, I was like, budgeting? Not doing that. I know where that leads. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous place. I don't want to be there. And there was a piece of me that was actually kind of proud that I didn't have a budget. I was free. One thing that I've realized as I've become a real adult is that if you want to thrive financially, for example, you need a budget. You need to be able to tell your money where to go. You need some process that you can review how you are spending your money and to make plans for how you want to spend your money going forward, how you want to save, how you want to give, all of these different things. Budgeting is a great thing. With my friend, I threw away the baby, the thing that really was good for me, budgeting, with the bathwater, all of his pretty extreme habits, because his presentation was so extreme that I knew it had no place in my life. Now, I want to talk about a topic today that we're going to look at from Scripture that, if we're being perfectly honest, a lot of us treat this the way I treated my friend, that we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Today, we're talking about evangelism, or sharing your faith. One person is excited, the other <laughs> 500 or not. And the scripture we're going to look at today is about something that is truly essential for your Christian life. Now, I know a lot of us come from different uh, perspectives, and some of you guys are pretty new to Christianity, or you're dipping your toes in the water, or you're just here today because a friend invited you. You don't even know what you believe about anything. Uh, for you, today you're, you're being part of a conversation 
Uh, you get to listen in to an insider conversation that a lot of Christians are having, having about the way faith should look. But that word evangelism or sharing your faith carries a lot of baggage. When I hear that word evangelism, my first thought goes to someone who's yelling at you on the subway um, and, you know, it's detached. Everybody has their AirPods in and they turn their volume up as loud as they can go so they don't have to hear someone. And that's not evangelism. That is not biblical evangelism, what we're talking about. My fear is that the extreme examples would make you dismiss what is actually valid for your life. But that brings us to the 13,000 pound elephant in the room about what it looks like in New York City in 2020, and that talking about Jesus publicly or sharing your faith is not something that culture at large says is a good thing. And it's really interesting. Most people have some version of this, uh, and this might be you, and I, I wanna challenge this a little bit. It's, hey, Christianity is great for you. Just like, don't go telling everybody about it. Like, let, else, let everyone do them. Like, if they wanna do them, just let them do them. But like, don't go forcing your values on someone else. And to a certain extent, I, I do resonate with that. We shouldn't go forcing our way on anybody. That's not what we're talking about today. But the opposite of that, being silent, is also not a good option. If you think about it, religion, or even specifically Christianity, is the only thing we apply that logic to. Nobody applies that logic to racism. Nobody says, well, I think racism is bad, but hey, if you want to be a white supremacist, go ahead. I'm going to let you do you. Nobody applies that to things because when the stakes are high, there can be no neutrality. Some of the best work in racism uh, over the um, last number of decades has been this call to not just be neutral, but to be an anti-racist. That when the stakes are really high, you can never be neutral. Now, if what Jesus said about himself is true, if what Jesus said about him being God who has come to earth and that without him means eternal separation from God, then the stakes are, are really high. And if you believe that about Jesus, then neutrality should never be an option. Letting everyone just do them should, should never just be an option. So whether or not it's a, a valuable cultural thing, it is something that is absolutely vital to your walk if you are a, a Christian. Now I'm worried that in the same way I discarded some really practical and helpful financial tips because of the extreme versions, I am worried about our church and the American church at large uh, discarding what it means to live a life um, where your faith is lived in, in public, not obnoxiously, uh, but lived in public. It's vital to us thriving as uh, a Christian. Now, why do I say it's vital to you thriving as a Christian? Because uh, this is very true. Anyone that you love privately should eventually be something that you're proud to talk about. Anything or anyone that you love privately should eventually be someone or something that you're proud to talk about. Uh, ladies, let me give you an example, and fellas, I hope I'm not giving, getting anybody in any trouble. Ladies, let's just say you meet a guy, and y'all chatting online, and you meet him in person, and his picture actually looks like what he looks like in real life, and you're like, oh, okay. And this dude loves Jesus, uh, he has good credit, all the things that you'd be proud of. And eventually your relationship intensifies. You go on a few dates and man, this is really shaping up to be a good thing. You hit that really annoying puppy love phase where you're on the phone like, no, you hang up first. No, no, you hang up first. And things couldn't be going better. You invite him to Renaissance one Sunday and he walks through the lobby and as soon as you see him, 
he darts and goes in the opposite direction. And you're like, okay, well maybe he's serving in kids or something like that. Uh, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And you text him and say, hey, I saved us some seats for us to sit together. And he says, you know what? I'm nearsighted. I actually need to sit 30 yards behind, so I can't sit next to you in church, but I'm gonna catch you after. After church, you text him and say, hey, me and some of my friends are going out to get some, something to eat, some brunch. Do you want to come along? And he blows you off, goes directly home, doesn't want to be seen with you in public. Then that night, he texts you again. Hey, boo. Can I come over to your house and make you some dinner? And he comes over with a bag full of Whole Foods groceries, trying to make you your favorite meal, whispering these sweet nothings in your ear. But where was all of that? in public. At some point, I'm not saying this needs to happen day one or day two in a relationship, but at some point, anything that's really special, anything that you love or anyone that you love should become something you're proud to talk about in public. The biggest challenge in evangelism is not that we don't talk about Jesus to people. It's that deep down inside, we know this to be true. The things that we love, we talk about. The people that we love, we talk about. It's impossible to be in relationship with me and not hear me tell story after story about my wife and my kids and my parents and those who are closest to me. How is it that Jesus Christ, for some of you, is the most important relationship in your life, and yet you're ashamed or afraid to talk about him publicly? The problem is not the conversation or tips or strategies or how to talk about Jesus. I actually think the problem is the love or the lack of it. My hope today is to talk about Jesus and to talk about the gospel in such a way that it recaptures our heart so that slowly but surely, uh, if this is you, you grow in love, not in confidence how to talk about Jesus, not with uh, preset scripts on how to evangelize to someone, but that it's love and that that love flows naturally out of you and spills out of you and becomes something that you talk about publicly. Uh, Let me define evangelism before we get too far down the road. Uh, Evangelism can be defined as our human effort of talking about Jesus and trusting and praying that God will supernaturally use our human means to affect his divine purposes. There are many definitions of what evangelism is or can be, uh, but this was the one um, that I think would be a good and helpful tool for us to guide us through the rest of today. Our human effort of talking about Jesus and trusting and praying that God will supernaturally use our human means to affect his divine purposes. Now, our scripture this morning comes from John 4, and this is our second week of looking at the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter. And it comes from a story about Jesus and a woman at the well. Let me catch you guys up a little bit on the story. Uh, It's about 12 noon, and Jesus goes to a well to get some water. He approaches a, a Samaritan woman and says, hey, can you give me something to drink. And she says, what are you doing talking to a Samaritan? Because Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. They have no dealings with each other. Jesus says, if you knew the one who was asking, you would ask me for water. She says, sir, you don't even have a bucket. Jesus says, what I've come to give is living water. And they engage in a spiritual conversation. And eventually, Jesus starts to confront hard areas and truths in her life. This woman becomes convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And um, the conversation picks up in verse 25, where it says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. 
Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this is really the savior of the world. Now, I want to draw out three things from this text today, some other text, to kind of undo some things that I think are sabotaging our faith and sabotaging our ability and our comfort with this uh, topic uh, of evangelism and what it looks like for your faith, your journey with Jesus to thrive, that there will be a private love that flows out naturally and powerfully into public expressions uh, about talking about Jesus. And I think there's a couple of reasons a few reasons why evangelism is something that makes us a little nervous just to even talk about, or makes us feel a little weird, or made us squirm when I said the word the first time. And I think the first reason is that we just misunderstand what evangelism is. We, we misunderstand evangelism. Uh, we think that it's you standing uh, on some street corner somewhere, yelling at random people about Jesus, or alternatively, that it's some sometimes obnoxious, but always kind of forced way of bringing Jesus into every conversation. Evangelism is not memorizing a prepackaged script on how to win someone into faith. Evangelism is, is something that some people are gifted with to be evangelists, and others of us have different sets of expectations about what it looks like for us to relate to people who might be far from God, but they are close to us. So um, it's not being subway preaching, uh, it's highly relational. And there's one thing we see from the text, this woman went into the town to talk to people and starts telling people, this is the man, come meet this man who told me about everything that I had been doing. Presumably, everyone else in town also knew what she was doing. They knew her, she was not a stranger. Evangelism is not something you're called to do to strangers. Now, there are some people who are called to speak to strangers, and these people are gifted evangelists that God has called and gifted to be evangelists, to speak to people um, about Jesus. Uh, every single Sunday, I do this as a part of my job. There are so many people who come to Renaissance who I've never met, and I, I get the amazing privilege and honor to talk to them about Jesus. Your job is not necessarily to do that. To be a faithful and loving Christian doesn't mean that you have to stand on a stage one day and start talking about Jesus. It does mean something equally powerful, but something different. Now, this is also not for the super Christian, 
right? A lot of us think that they're like different grades of Christians, right? Like, so like, I mean, like I'm not that kind of Christian that I'm talking to people about Jesus, but I'm just like the Christian Christian, you know what I'm saying? Uh, this woman shows us that that is absolutely not true. She's not a special person. We don't even know her name from the text. She wasn't coming to people like she was better than them. She wasn't pretending she was smarter than them. She wasn't uh, acting as if she was special. She's basically saying, I had this life-changing encounter with Jesus, and yo, y'all got to come and meet him. Evangelism is not you being a moral superior than anyone else. It's simply one beggar begging another beggar, telling another beggar where they found the bread. Uh, Paul gives us some very clear instructions about what evangelism looks like, and I want us to consider this in terms of what you can take today. You can put this in your pocket. If you're taking notes, this is a great place to start taking notes. Uh, This is how you can uh, become an evangelist and incorporate this into your walk today. It comes from Colossians 4, uh, verses 2 through 6. It says, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us to speak to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, Paul gives us a model for what it looks like for you and me uh, to be evangelistic in your life, that you would be able to express publicly what you have going on inside of you privately. Now, on one hand, Paul is convinced that inside the family of Jesus, there are some people who are gifted and called as evangelists, and he sees himself as one of these people. Paul sees their job to travel through the regions and preaching and teaching about Jesus. Now, as we see in verse 3, for those people, Paul wants uh, this, this church in Coloss to pray for them to have opportunities to exercise that gift. Secondly, to pray that they're bold enough in their message and also for clarity when they're talking about Jesus. If you ever wanted to know a prayer request from me, this would be a prayer request that I would say, is that every single Sunday when I stand on the stage that you would pray, that I would be... Um, Uh, I would uh, have open doors to talk to people about Jesus, that people's minds and and hearts and and ears would be open to hear the message that's coming forward, that I'd be bold in whatever I was saying, uh, that I wouldn't go back to being a people pleaser, and also that I would be clear in everything that I was saying. So Paul sees, on one hand, the job of the Christian to pray for those who God has called as evangelists. For the other 99% of people who are not evangelists, he still calls us to live evangelistically. And how do you do that? Um, The first thing Paul says is to devote yourselves to prayer. Think about people in your life that might be far from God, but they're close to you, and how flippantly and how um, much we just don't pray for people to have what we say is the greatest thing on the planet. Now, it's interesting. For whatever reason, we kind of feel like the people who are, who they've grown up in church, And, you know, their grandfather's a pastor and their mother's on the missionary board. These are the type of people who are likely to become a Christian. But the Bible doesn't talk about faith like that. The Bible talks about it in terms of everyone who comes to faith, that their life is gone from death to life. In Ephesians 2, it it, it says these words and it says, you know, for you were dead in your sins and God has made you alive. Now, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never seen nobody get up. And if I did see someone get up, 
I'd run out of there, first and foremost. But secondly, I would know that that joint was an absolute miracle. It wasn't something that happened as a result of clever speaking. It wasn't something that happened as a result of a good band or a good worship set. It was a miracle that God himself had done. Jesus says as much in John 5, 24, he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The first thing that we need to do is to be to devote ourselves to prayer that God would do something in someone's life that we could never do on our own. And the good news about that is it takes all the pressure off of you because now you're saying, I don't have to convince this person into the kingdom. I'm praying that God does something in their life. The second thing Paul says is to be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Paul assumes that Christians take their behavior very seriously, not just so that they can get a sticker for how well they're doing, but also in that people are looking to your life. There, there's one scripture in 1 Peter where it talks about our lives are living epistles, are living letters, that people are reading our, our lives. And he calls Christians to live in a way that you are wise in the way uh, that you act towards outsiders. If we're being perfectly honest, it's to maintain our credibility upon, if we ever get the chance to talk about Jesus. I don't know that anybody's going to ever listen to you talk about Jesus if every time they hear you talking, you're talking about someone else. James, in the book of James, James says, um, how can salt water and fresh water come from the same spring? How can it come from the same source? We have to be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders. Another thing that certainly is very prevalent in New York City and uh, is the way that we handle our bodies and sexual purity. It's not just for the sake of, again, getting a sticker or, or, or living a life in a certain way. But it's that everybody, even if they're not Christian, they, they know that there's a, an ethic that, sex, that Christians are supposed to adhere to. That, as one old theologian says, that Christians were called to live generously with their money and stingy with their bodies. And as time has gone on, we have become generous with our bodies and stingy with our money. Right. Now, candidly speaking, I know what it means to, to struggle. And there's a difference between struggling and, and letting go. Uh, my wife and I got married after like 10 months because I, she just couldn't keep her hands off of me. And <laughs> to keep her pure, I said, let's just get married. Uh, but in all seriousness, it's, it, was a, it was a miracle that God uh, allowed us. We, limped, we got to the finish line. We limped there, but we got there. Um, but there's a difference between Struggling, and again, I know about struggling, and completely just letting go completely of the Christian ethic. What does that do to the credibility of our, of our words when we are to speak about Jesus? And I don't want us putting, in us putting ourselves in a position where we shoot ourselves in the foot should an opportunity ever arise. The third thing that Paul says in the scripture is to make the most out of every opportunity, right? So, man, I hate being Jesus-juked, and I hate it when Christians try to Jesus juke a conversation into something, something that had nothing to do with Jesus and they somehow find a way to bring it back into that conversation. You could be out and they'd be like, oh, how was your weekend? It was good. You like the weekend, right? There's a Saturday, there's a Sunday. Sunday's a day for worship. What did you do on Sunday? And you're like, dude, we were talking about football. How did you get to, uh, to Jesus on that conversation? To make the most out of every opportunity, every interaction is not an opportunity. Even more importantly, 
if you're looking at people just trying to wedge in Jesus to the conversation, you're just going to be a really bad friend. You're going to be the type of person that nobody wants to be around because you're not listening to people. You're just listening for how you can insert Jesus into the conversation. And that's not what we're called to do. Uh, years ago, uh, when I was practicing law in family court, uh, we would have a couple of hours a day where I would spend hours and hours with the same attorneys in the back room. And most of the time we talk about our crazy clients, but uh, at some point the conversation would usually turn towards personal life. And one of my colleagues uh, started telling me about their parents, one of their parents uh, who was sick. And I said, hey, what's their name? I'm gonna pray for them today. That started a spiritual conversation in our life and it wasn't weird, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't Jesus joking them. They expressed a genuine need and I let them know that I was a Christian who, who prayed and they were very glad to receive my prayers. And they've actually followed my journey from law into ministry. And they've been very supportive of everything we've, uh, we've been doing here at Renaissance. And it's been a really amazing uh, interaction that I've had with them. And it started because there was an opportunity. There are so many opportunities that you have in your relationships with people. And my prayer is that you would look out for these things and, and make the most out of every single uh, opportunity. Most of you will never be on a stage talking about Jesus, and that is perfectly okay, but there are opportunities that present themselves to us on a routine ba uh, basis for us to take. Again, private love flowing out into public conversation. The fourth thing Paul says is to let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. How would you answer what our relationship with Jesus is about? One of the things I would want you to do this week is to spend some time defining what is the gospel? What is Christianity about? If you are a Christian, can you define that? And if not, I want you to spend some time thinking about that, uh, doing some research and really committing, you know, however much, how much time is, is possible or is necessary to, to be able to define that so that if a conversation ever does arise and you are talking about Christianity and the gospel, you're not like embarrassed that you don't know what to say, but that you're prepared and you know how to give people a response for if and when they ask you a question about your faith. Uh, this is not so that you can memorize a prepackaged version that you can deliver to them, but so that it becomes internalized in you so that if and when the time comes, you can speak about faith, not just in an emotionally uh, real way, but in an intellectually credible way that it makes sense that you can explain it to other people. So Paul gives us these four things. The guideline for you, devote yourself to prayer. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity and know how to answer everyone. Now, we're here in this room today because uh, a woman did this for me about 20 years ago. Uh, there's a woman named Veronica who led me to faith and uh, we were in Spanish class together. And uh, I noticed something weird about her in that when everybody else was cheating, she wasn't. And I was like, this is why we do stuff together so we can cheat. This is like, I don't know what, what you're trying to do. And I, it was something so peculiar about her that she would rather get a C and not cheat than get an A with cheating. And that was just so profound to me. And she and I ended up becoming friends and we started um, studying Spanish together. Uh, and I remember one day she, we were talking about something and somehow the conversation turned to something spiritual and she uh, asked to share what she had read that morning in her journal. And I said, yeah, go for it. And that 
began the journey of my faith. What really messed me up was a couple months before that, a couple months after that, after I had become a Christian, she told me that for every, every single day, she had been praying for me. Every day when we'd be in Spanish class together, she was praying that God would do something in my life. I was not the dude that you would have thought was primed and ready to have a relationship with Jesus, to drop everything I was doing and follow Jesus. I was showing up to class high out of my mind every single day. And every single day I was showing up to class high out of my mind. She was praying for me. And when the opportunity came, when the opportunity came, she made the most of it. And God did something supernatural through her very human effort. You have no idea what God could do through your human effort. Uh, the second thing about uh, evangelism that we misunderstand is we, we misunderstand God's heart. We misunderstand God's heart. And there's so many of us who misunderstand the purpose of what it means to be the body of Christ and what God is really after. God is not after the performance improvement of people who call themselves Christians. And so many of us maniacally uh, obsess over how we're doing day to day that we give no thought to the outside world whatsoever. Jesus says in a number of instances throughout the New Testament that he has come to seek and to save the lost. His mission, his purpose, his reason for coming was to seek and to save the lost. Uh, there's a scripture in Luke 19 uh, about a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And tax collectors were known for being the most corrupt people in ancient Israel culture. And uh, they were very hated for a number of reasons. One, they were collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. And then they were notorious for adding extra money on top of that for themselves, pocketing it and then uh, just completely extorting uh, their own Jewish people. So they were stealing from their own people to give to the Roman um, Empire and to give to their oppressors, and they were hated like crazy in Jewish culture. Jesus one day is walking, and he sees this guy in a tree, and he notices Zacchaeus. And he's not embarrassed to be near Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. Tonight we're going to have dinner together. Seamless on me. The Pharisees watching are absolutely in an outrage. They're saying, who does this guy think he is inviting a tax collector for dinner? Jesus turns to, the, to, the, to Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too, this crook, this tax collector, is a son of Abraham. Now, when you see that phrase, son of Abraham, in the Bible, it talks about Abraham was a father of faith. So he is the, the son. The, he is an inheritor of this great uh, faith that we have. And here's a line he says, for the son of man, Jesus, has come to seek and to save the lost. This is Jesus' purpose. A few months ago, my wife and I uh, went out with a couple to uh, go apple picking and we spent like $39 on four apples. And <laughs> as we were there having a great time uh, eating you know, apple cider donuts, um, the scariest moment of my life happened. My wife and I lost track of who was watching our kids. And in a sea of people, we noticed that our one-year-old was missing. She looked at me 
Both of our eyes got big, and my heart started beating out of my chest. Now, normally I joke and say, we have an heir and a spare. We got two kids. If one of them goes, and we still got another one left over. But this was the worst moment of my life. The thought about my beautiful little boy being missing consumed me. Immediately, my boy Dylan hopped on the table with his great parental instincts, and he said, you know, you guys take the, the ground game, I'll, I'll take up high. And he was our spotter looking out on different tables, and eventually he found him, but that was the, the worst minute of my life. My son had no idea what was going on. He was just walking around, just like. <laughs> <laughs> we picked him up and it was all good, but that hug in that moment was the best hug I've ever had in my life because my son who was lost was now found. Every Sunday, millions of Christians all around the world gather, raise their hands in worship and praise to God. While there are so many people that God has come to seek and to save, and our mind and our attention is not on them. If you would have stopped me in that moment when I was looking for my son and said, yo, Jordan, bro, I've been like digging the sweaters you've been rocking the last couple of weeks. You know what I'm saying? I, I see what you've been doing. I like the way that you're dressed. Or, bro, that was a dope sermon. Or, you know, or, hey, man, Renaissance is really cool in the way that we do X, Y, and Z. Listen, I would have told you either help me find my son or get out of my way. My mission, my purpose is to find my son who is lost. Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And we misunderstand the heart of God. When we privatize our faith and we think it's all about us, and we miss out on the mission that God has for us, there are so many people who are far from God and they're close to you, and I don't want you to miss out on what God wants to do through you and for other people. So we misunderstand evangelism and we misunderstand uh, God's heart. Um, uh, 2 Peter 3 and 9 says it like this, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If we misunderstand, the, if we misunderstand God our Father, we run the risk of not caring about what God cares about. And this is one of the biggest obstacles for the Pharisees. They were always looking at the letter of stuff and they forgot about people. So Jesus would heal someone on the Sabbath and they'd be like, well, it shouldn't have happened on a Saturday. And he's like, did you notice what just happened? I just restored this guy to, the, to his family and you're arguing with me about a day? It's entirely possible to be around religious things and to not have a heart for what God has a heart about. The third thing, we misunderstand the gospel. Uh, the, the word gospel literally means good news. Um, and the word gospel is actually borrowed from that ancient culture. In ancient days, when a king or a warrior would return from battle, what they would do is they would come through the city in a procession with flags and this gospel announcement, the good news that they had triumphed in war and they would have this, ent this entire um, caravan of supplies and all the spoils of war that they had won. Good news is a past tense thing about what had happened. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Many of us are not, we don't really have uh, an outflowing public love that we can talk about because the gospel is really not good news to us. It's just good advice about things that we should be doing that we're not doing that makes us feel guilty. So it's not good news. Uh, every January, I go on a self-imposed social media fast to hopefully lock my focus into my goals for the next year 
And uh, a couple of weeks ago, last week, uh, I was watching something that as soon as I saw it, I knew I was going to post it online and break my fast. Uh, I got to watch my mother swearing in my brother as a judge in New Rochelle City Court. And yes, that's amazing. <laughs> to see the pride in my dad's eyes, to see the pride in my mother's eyes, it was absolutely incredible. As soon as I uh, got off of that stage, I re-downloaded my apps and put them online because good news is meant to be shared. Good news in your life, we share all of it. The small things and the big things. We always, we're so used to sharing good news because good news is meant to be shared. And if we're not sharing about Jesus, then my problem is not with your methods, but I don't know that it's truly good news to you. But the gospel is meant to be good news. When Jesus encountered people, their interactions with him led them to believe that he was the good news embodied and they had no problem talking about him. There's a man named Bartimaeus and he was blind. And for his entire life, he had been used to getting passed over. But one day, Jesus was coming to town. He screamed at the Jesus, son of man, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped his very important procession of dignitaries and rabbis and stops and turns to the man that everybody else had walked past to the forgotten and to the forsaken. Jesus is good news. There was a man named Jairus who ran to Jesus one day in a full panic. His daughter was sick, so sick that they were afraid that she was going to die. Jairus goes to Jesus, begging with him and pleading with him to come and to heal his daughter. Jesus obliged eventually and went to Jairus' house, raised his daughter from the dead, and Jairus got to witness the power of God. For the people who need to experience God's power in hopeless situations, Jesus is good news. There was a follower of Jesus named Peter. Peter had high highs and low lows. And Peter one day was bragging about how he was going to ride with Jesus to the end. We ride together, we die together. Bad boys, New Testament. <laughs> Peter is so braggadocious and Jesus looks at him in his eyes and says, Peter, for the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Never going to happen, Jesus. By the time the rooster crow, Peter had denied Jesus Three times, Peter went out and it says he wept bitterly and he ran away from everything. Think about it. What worse can you do? What worse thing can you do than to just publicly deny Jesus? I don't want anything to do with him. I have nothing to do with him. Peter goes and thinks that it's all over. Jesus, after he's resurrected, goes to the disciples and says, where's Peter? He goes and he says, Peter, son of John, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And he reinstates Peter. And 50 days later, Peter is preaching about this amazing grace to the prodigal son who had gone and spent everything he had recklessly and thought to himself, maybe one day if I go back, my father will let me come in as a servant. So I'm going to go to his house and beg for a job. He gets to his father's driveway. And as soon as he gets close to his father's house, he sees a sight of an old man running as fast as he can run. This man comes and throws his robe on him and says, come, let's kill the fatted calf. It's time for a party. My son who was lost is now found. The prodigal son with the words on his lips, trying to form out an explanation for his terrible behavior. His father says, we don't need any of that. It's time to party. To the prodigal son, grace is good news. What is God's grace in your life? Is it good advice on things that you need to do? 
Or is it good news on how Jesus is faithful even when you're faithless? How Jesus is powerful even when you're powerless? How Jesus will walk alongside of you day in and day out? And how right now it says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you right now at this moment. That's good news. Now here at Renaissance, we celebrate the good news uh, of the gospel in a number of ways. And one of those ways we get to do that is through something called baptism. Uh, Baptism is a practice that goes back thousands of years where it is an outward expression of the good news that though we were dead in sin, God has made us alive because of his mercy and because of his great love for us. God made us alive in Christ. And baptism symbolizes going down in water, burying our sins, and being raised in new life with Christ. We get the amazing opportunity and privilege to do that now. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful that you are good to us, and that you love us, and that you care for us. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to develop a deeper, deeper well of private love that would outflow into public expressions. And Lord, that you would do something amazingly powerful through our human efforts. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen.